We're going to begin reading in verse 30 of chapter 9. The Lord began in chapter 9 giving us some previews, uh, first of all of his glory, and then he gave previews of his death. And previews now, we're going to see of rewards, and then later on, even a preview of hell in this chapter. But let's read these verses, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. And they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid and to ask him. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed us not. And we forbade him, because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. And whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Correctly read, it's the word of God, read from Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 41. I want to speak to you this morning on the greatness of service. The greatness of service. After coming from the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration in the first 13 verses, now then to the gloom of the valley of despair and discouragement in verses 14 to 29 that we read. In the training of the disciples, we now come in chapter 9 and then, of course, on into chapter 10 later, a time of our Lord's private training of his disciples. 
his ministry in Caesarea Philippi is coming to a close and going through Galilee and on through Samaria and then to Judea, our Lord uses this private time and this long journey to equip his disciples for the ministry that they would have and that they would be facing without him after his, he arrives in Jerusalem and goes to Calvary to lay down his life for our sins. In chapter 9 here, I notice that it is amazing to me that verse 31, they're still caught up with the idea, they can't get the idea that he's going to have to die. And so that's why this chapter develops the way it is because they're still looking for the glory of a, of a king being on the throne now and, and dispelling all of their enemies. And they're looking for the great uh, pomp and circumstance, if you would, of that great kingdom and where they would be. But in chapter 9, we find that there are several great paradoxes uh, in the Christian life that are mentioned here. Uh, in chapter 9, in the first 13 verses, we see that he would spoke to us as the paradox of glory out of suffering. And what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration was a confirmation of the testimony of Peter that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's also a revelation of the glory of the cross. Remember what Paul said in the Colossians uh, in Galatians, regarding the cross. He said, But God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. So you see, the cross in one's life will make a difference. The cross in one's life will cause, will bring about service. Uh, now, first, there must be suffering, and then there would be glory. And when, when we read 1 Peter, uh, the book of 1 Peter, we understand that. We, you discover that Peter learned this lesson very well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we would see in verse 6, and the, a couple of verses following, he says, Wherein we ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being more precious, much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found to the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And then he goes on to say, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Also in 1 Peter, in the verse 11, notice he says, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was, was in them, did signify when it certified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Always there would be sufferings before glory. And then in 1 Peter, still 1 Peter, again, chapter 4, and verse, beginning in verse 12, 
He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On, on their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of your suffering, uh, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's affairs. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let, it, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, the elders, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And then in verse 10, in verse, beginning in verse 10, he says, But the grace of God, but the grace of, uh, but the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you, we don't have the time, but if I've got so much to say and so little time to say it, um, I should have started sooner, I guess. But, uh, but if you would go down verse, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 5, you'll see how, you'll see, the, you'll see the means, grace is the means of service. If you look at that, you'll see, first of all, we're to submit ourselves and then what these disciples were having problem with was in verse 6, humble yourselves. And then verse 7, cast all your care upon him for he careth for you. And then verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. And then verse 9, resist steadfast in the faith. And then knowing that these same afflictions uh, are in your brethren that are in the world. So, we understand that there will be sufferings as far as God's people are concerned. But these men could not seem to understand that at this time. Now, that's why he needed this time alone with them to teach them. Satan offers, will offer you glory without suffering. Remember in the Matthew chapter 4 when he took the Lord up into the, high, uh, to the pinnacle and he told him, he's going to show him all these kingdoms that I'll give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Let me tell you, if he had come down and worshiped at that moment, if he had come down that one time, you would still be in your sins. And I would still be in my sins. So Satan always will offer glory without the suffering, but it ends up suffering without glory. Uh, so we see the first paradox that we see in chapter 9 is that glory without suffering. Then there is victory, 
I'm sorry, glory out, glory out of suffering. And then we see victory out of defeat. Victory out of defeat. In verses 14 to 29, we saw that last time. Their failure to deliver the boy that, uh, from the devil... Now, this was the nine that were left there, you remember, but their failure to deliver the boy did three things. First of all, it grieved the Lord. And secondly, it gave support to the enemy. Those, you remember, those scribes were standing there arguing uh, with those nine men when they came, when the Lord and James, uh, Peter, James, and John came down from the mountain. They were there arguing. And so they gave support to the enemy. See, you can't do anything. And it would give us a picture of how we're supposed to act, really. Uh, we're still supposed to act in faith and by faith when Christ is not in our presence physically. You see, that was the case there. Christ wasn't in their presence physically. He was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. So how did they act? Well, they didn't act so well, but it, that gave support to the enemy but then it robbed, the third thing is it robbed God of glory, his glory. Now, the nine disciples who were left behind had neglected their spiritual, uh, had neglected, neglected their spiritual disciplines and lost their power, according to verse 29. We remember, we could go back to several verses, chapter 6 and verse 7, and find out. God had already, Jesus had already commissioned them to cast out devils. But now for some reason they couldn't do that. When you find yourself defeated, turn to him for victory and discover where you went wrong. Several, well, a year ago, I guess it was, I was going to take Judy somewhere and we we uh it was at the one of the up in one of the up one of the mill houses somewhere way up in the north of georgia and uh so we're sitting at a traffic light and she's i've got my gps and she's got google or siri my GPS said turn left. Siri said turn right. So we went straight. <laughs> Actually, what I did first, though, I did go left. I followed my GPS and ended back up at the same red light, just the other direction. So, folks, when you go wrong, find out where you went wrong. Uh, but now we come to, uh, to our text here that, the, that we read. That we saw those first two paradoxes. And that would be glory out of suffering and victory out of defeat. But in these verses, we would see greatness out of service. The key to this passage in Mark's gospel, this is the key passage in Mark's gospel, because it emphasizes the importance of service. Uh, don't aim 
for human greatness. It's amazing to me how many people, young people, young married couples, and they have their children, and they start trying to train the boys to hit the ball the furthest and to and to pitch the ball the straightest and kick the ball the highest and run through the biggest crowd with a football and, and bust them all up and do all this. And, and, but, and they're training them for human greatness. Over these years, I've watched it, and greatness happens to some. But greatness neglects a whole lot. But the key passage here is service. So don't aim at human greatness. Aim to be more like Christ. Uh, don't measure yourself by other servants, by the way. Uh, we, we're very guilty of that in the Baptist uh, realm, especially the independent Baptists. We want to measure ourselves by the, other, by the one down the street or across the city or in the other state. We always want to have the biggest meeting, the largest uh, gathering. We want to have, we want to have the... Uh, we want to have the keynote speakers and all these fellows that we pay big bucks to come in and preach to us. We seem to be, not feel like we can do anything unless we have human greatness, I guess. So don't measure yourself by other servants, measure yourself by Christ. By him, verse 38 to verse 41, we, we saw. Notice it says, They departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. Now why? That's verse 30. The Lord was on the move again, heading back uh, toward home, seeking uh, to keep his movements secret, as, as secret as possible. Remember this uh, miracle-thirsty crowd had created all these interruptions in the time past that he, and he wanted to avoid all of that now. His chief goal was to teach his disciples as much as he could because in just a few months he was going to be leaving them. As the unpromising, as unpromising materials as they were, they didn't show much promise. They, they doubtless seemed to be at the state where the future church would depend upon them. Can you imagine having this crew here and after Jesus leaves, at this point, they've got to maintain the church. And they can't even agree on who's the greatest in the kingdom. They can't even agree on what should be done. They don't even understand the death, the burial, and the resurrection. It was far more important that he teach them than that he, uh, than that he heal a few dozen more sick people because they could, they could go and do that. Verse 32, verse 31 and verse 32, he taught for he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he, after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. 
but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. We don't understand. People say, preacher, can I ask you a question? You can ask me any question you want to ask me if you do not demand an answer. I've, I know all the questions, but the answers seem to elude me. But here, they were afraid to ask him about this. Now, let me, let me say, notice he taught them. He, he says he taught his disciples. This is in the, for you English teachers, this is the imperfect tense that's used here. You, you English students and kids that are so involved and can't wait to get back to the English classes. Um, uh, this, it means it's a continual thing. He, he began to teach them back in 831, you remember. And it takes us back to that previous occasion a week or so earlier when he had at Capernaum, uh, at uh, Caesarea Philippi, he first broached the subject of his impending death. Notice it says the Son of Man, he says here in verse 31, and the Son of Man, the Son of Man is delivered. Now, he said, he, he's used the present tense here to indicate uh, his predicted sufferings. Now, this word delivered is a, is a is a strange word. It's a it's a word that um, uh, it's a it's a legal term, and it, it suggests that he will be delivered uh, at the at the order of uh, of legal proceedings, if you would. And of course, we know as we go down as he faced some that they ordered him here and ordered him there and then finally ordered him to the cross. And now all of, all of this talk about him being killed and raising again three days later, what kind of talk is this? They, they, they just don't understand this. What, what, what can't you get right about this, guys? I mean, I, 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 I'm, I created the, the heavens. I, I created the sun and the moon and the stars and all that's in the earth. And you can't, you can't believe what I'm telling you? They had two problems. All these disciples were, they were getting confused and, and they were getting discouraged by the Lord's uh, word about, about two things. First of all, in verse 31, we see about his rejection. And then also, the second part of verse 31, about his resurrection. How could they ever reject you? And how could there ever, you ever die and be resurrected? You see, they, they're just, they're prancing at the door here, trying to, trying to get into the palace when he sets up the kingdom. Not even Peter and James and John, who had, who had only just a few, uh, just recently heard Elijah and Moses conversing with the Lord Jesus about his forecoming dis, uh, decease, which they, which they described as something that he would accomplish. They didn't understand that. that Luke chapter 9, verse 31 uses the word accomplish. 
Now, as we look at verse 33 and 34, Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, and, and, as, and it was the last visit to this city and probably the last time he would ever enter into Peter's house or the house where he was. It was probably Peter's. But in the house, he asked these disciples an embarrassing question. And I think it was embarrassing because of the subject. Why well, He says, what were you disputing about in the way? And they were silent. For their argument was concerning which one of them would be the greatest. The thoughts of Jesus on the journey were his sacrifice. I've got the cross in view. In just a few months, I'm going to die. And you're concerned about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? His thoughts were on his sacrifice, but yet his followers were filled with the selfishness, the selfish thoughts of evaluating the chief positions in the messianic kingdom well I could be here and I could rule over all of you guys and I could tell you what to, no no I, no, I think I, I deserve that spot no oh oh no wait a minute you two remember there's a time no no I, I better I better do that arguing back and forth you see they wanted to know who was going to be the chief in the kingdom when, when, they, when they, he set up his kingdom upon their arrival in Jerusalem, they still think that he's going to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom. Now, at first glance, this passage may seem to be a strange mixture of sayings back and forth, but if we look more closely into it, uh, we find that it contains at least two important truths about our service in the Christian life. The first is the secret of defeat. When they reached Capernaum, or Capernaum, Jesus asked his disciples what they were arguing about. We saw that in verse 33. And they were ashamed, of course, to tell him because they wanted to know who was, and he was the great, going to be the greatest. And I think that each one of them would be vying for the position. They, uh, and I'm sure there was a lot of, uh, uh, I'm sure MSNBC and Fox News and all these were there just waiting for the answer of which one's going to be the greatest. But this, and all this lies behind three reasons for their failure that we learned before. You remember? We learned last time. Now, this is still, they're still going on, but we learned three reasons last time why they had failed to catch the devil out of the boy, the young boy. First of all, the head of prayer had been ignored. You saw that in verse, we saw that in verse 14 to 29. When his disciples asked Jesus why they had failed to, he had failed to heal the boy, in verse 28, Jesus put his finger right on the spot saying that it was because they had failed to pray. The, apostles, the, apostle, uh, the apostle James said, says the same thing. James chapter 4 and verse 2, 
ye, have, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and ye cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. They didn't ask. It, it is true. Uh, this is true of many of us. Is it true of you many times? We have not because we ask. We, we need God to work in our life in a certain way, but we don't ask him. We tell everybody else to pray for us, but we never get on our face before God in private and ask God to work. One thing for certain, or one thing is certain that you cannot have victory in public unless you have vigilance in private. So the first thing was that they, they, prayer was ignored. We learned that. And the second part of their, the second reason they failed was the power was impeded. Sin always does that. If we go back and read those verses in 20, uh, 14 to 29, we'll see that there was the sin of unbelief in their life. But powers in sin always does that. It spoils our witness, we see in verse 14 of chapter 9. And it, it ruins our usefulness, we see in verse 18. Notice that this was, a, this was a, the sin of omission. And we would see what James would have to say about that in James 4, verse 17, if you have the time to look that up later. Uh, is there any unconfessed or unforsaken sin that's spoiling our life? That was what was happening in their life. They, were, they didn't believe that God would do it or could do it. If that, if that be the case, ask God to deal with it immediately in your life and ask him to help you. The third reason that they had failed, we saw, was the priorities were inverted. Verse 29, fasting need not necessarily. Now, he said, so these things come out only by prayer and fasting, he said. Now, fasting uh, need not necessarily refer only to going without food. Uh, but it is a wider has a wider interpretation. It can involve um, a meaning uh, going without other things, which uh, in themselves would not be wrong, but God says you go without that. You, you fast from that. You leave that alone, But which uh, be, could be time. It could be money. You, have you, You ought, to, you ought to see how much time you spend on your computer and on the iPhone. Sometimes on the way to, to church or going somewhere, I'll sit at a red light or stop sign, I'll see the people behind me and they've got their face in their phone. But we waste a lot of time, don't we? And by the way, don't try to buy everything you hear advertised on the television. You're going to waste a lot of money. So we see it could be, it could be, it could be a fasting for, of your time or, uh, or money. It could be better spent in other ways, our time and our money. But remember, Jesus had already commissioned these 12, as I said, to cast out the devil, or cast out devils. You can read that in, in Mark 3, verse 14 and 15. And then, of course, chapter 6, verse 7. But because they were disobedient over prayer and the flow of power 
into their lives was blocked. The disciples now at this point where we start our text today are still self-centered. You see back there in those previous verses, they thought they could do it in their own power. Jesus wasn't with them. He, wasn't in, he was not in their physical presence. But now here we see they are, they are still self-centered in their ambitions, in their attitudes. And notice how quickly they criticized the man who had, uh, the man who did not belong in their own particular circle. Verse 38, it says, And John answered him unto Jesus, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth, followeth not us. In other words, he didn't do it just like we did. And Jesus just turned around and said, if he hadn't been on our side, he wouldn't have done that. Folks, there's a lot of division, a lot of division, a lot of division among our churches. And I'm talking about Bible-believing churches today because you don't do it exactly like I do it. I've had people say, well, preacher, why do you sit up on the pulpit? Why, why do you sit up here while other people preach it? It's none of your business. <laughs> no, the reason I do it it's none of your business. No, sometimes it's easier for me to get stay here than it is to climb back up here. And, but, well, they just don't do things exactly the way we do it. You know, you've got to, you've got to, uh, you've got to, um, 100 and, uh, 150 buses you've got to run every Saturday. Nothing wrong with running buses, folks. Wish we had some buses to run. Wish we had somebody to drive buses. Maybe Evan needs to get a CDL license or whatever it is license. <laughs> and uh, uh, nothing wrong with that at all. But I'm just telling you folks, you can go to all the preacher seminars you want to go to and still preacher schools you want to go to, pastor schools you want to go to, and still do it wrong. And we've seen some of that come out of these preacher schools. But here, this group, they wanted to, uh, we wouldn't let them go with us because they didn't do it. They're not with us, not one of us. So in reply, Jesus, then what did he do? He took a little child and in his arms and as a kind of a visual aid, if you would, and, and, and told them that humility in verse 35 is childlike trust, verse 37. And then kindness, verse 41. Now, folks, let me say to you, when I see things going wrong, kindness is not one of my best suits. But, you know, I have found out over the years, you, you may not know what's going on in that person's life. There may be something going on that otherwise they wouldn't be acting the way they're acting. 
But he's just simply saying humility, childlike trust, and kindness are marks of a true Christian. Not worrying about whether you're going to be first in the kingdom. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12 underlines the lesson and, and, and gives us a warning. Notice what Matthew 23, 12 says. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So we, we have seen so far here, we've seen the first secret. Or we've seen the secret of defeat. Then notice the secret of victory. A Christian is never free from temptation. I've heard people say, well, I'm never tempted. I never, I've never, I never sin, which they just sin. When they say they have never tempted and never sinned, they just sin. So here's the secret of victory. A Christian is never free from temptation, but temptation is not sin. When one is tempted, it's not sin. Uh, for even Jesus was tempted, you remember. Word of God tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. So the secret of victory. Many temptations, however, need to be faced. And you'll face... If you've never faced a temptation, you'll fall when one comes. And you're true as, as, you, as you stand up to temptation. You're true more. Many temptations need to be faced if the Christian obeys the secret, vict secret of victory which Jesus gives in these verses here, verse 43 to 47. Basically, notice he's simply saying, if anything you do, that is your hand. Notice he says, we're going to get down to verse 40, 47. He said, if, oh, verse uh, 45, he said, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. And then he talked about the, uh, the, the eye. If thy hand defend thee, he talks about that. And then he talks about the foot. Anything you do, that's a hand. Anywhere you go, that's your foot. Anything you see, that's your eye. If it puts temptation there, get away from it. Get out of it. Uh, there's some places that I can't go. Some things I can't see. Some things I can't do. And if you the truth be known, you'd have to say the same. I want us to look at another passage here just very quickly and try to tie this in with this in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, again in verse, two, verse 1, Paul says this. Now he's dealing here with the practice of believers in relation to other believers, first of all, and in relation to spiritual gifts, in relations to the former life, and so forth. 
But notice he says, I therefore, Paul, uh, this is verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy. And that word worthy there is to, means to be acceptable to God. That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now you can see, we go back to Mark chapter 9, you can see that these disciples were not doing what he's saying here. They knew nothing about lowliness. They knew nothing about meekness. But now at verse 27 of chapter 4, the Word of God says, Neither give place to the devil. Now that verse is, it says is to allow unconfessed sin in your life gives the Satan opportunity to take over. Now there's some sins if we if we have time, or since we do have time to go through this, there's some sins to avoid that Paul would mention in these verses. And I'll do it very quickly, as quickly as I can. Some sins to avoid that, that steal our victory that he discusses here. First of all, in the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, it's disunity. Believers are all one in Christ. Galatians 3:28. You see, that's what they could not understand about the one that was catching out devils that what they said wasn't with them. Believers are all one in Christ, but we must endeavor to make spiritual unity the practical reality in our daily lives. Folks, you if you're not careful, you can go to bed mad and you can wake up mad. And I would recommend to you, don't go to bed, don't go to try to go to sleep watching the news. You'll be mad for sure, and you'll have nightmares all night long, and you'll wake up mad. So Satan uses people who like to have their own way. But there's so disunity in the first 13 verses. And then immaturity in verse 14 to 16. Spiritual birth must lead to spiritual growth. Uh, and, and, and as we become more like Christ, you can reference here very quickly, 1 Peter 1, 22 to, to 1 Peter 2, 3. If we are maturing in Christ, we will show it by being able to speak the truth in love. You see, that's, that's the problem we have many times, evangelizing our friends and our loved ones. You have loved ones, you have friends that are out there on the fringe that are living in a way they should not live, and if you're not careful, every time you see them, you're going to jump them about the way they're living. Now, you don't need to agree with the way they're living. I'm not saying that, but I'm just simply saying this. You have to get down to bare facts with them, but you cannot turn every meeting into an evangelistic crusade. If you do, you will turn them off. Preacher, who do you think can be saved? 
This Bible says whosoever will can be saved. But I'm going to tell you, I think in our approach many times, we have turned people away from Christ instead of drawing them, drawing them to him. I know of a situation of a man and his wife who will not go to a specific church because they were approached in their pew about why did they not come to the altar and pray. And it's hard to get them to do anything and say anything, deal with anything spiritual in their lives as far as the church is concerned. Immaturity. We can speak the, love and, uh, speak the truth in love. Satan is a liar and is a murderer. John 8, 44, and he has a difficult time being successful when believers practice truth in love. But then the third thing, the third thing that, that steals that steals our victory is impurity. Verse 17 to 32. If you've been set free from your old life, so why, why, why would we live after the old sins anymore? Anything evil from the old life is, to be brought into, is not to be brought into the new life. If it is, it will be a, it will be a beachhead for Satan to launch his attack on you. Paul names such things as lying, uh, lo uh, losing your temper and stealing and, and corrupt, corrupt speech and bitterness and, and, and uh, for, for an unforgiving spirit. These sins all invite Satan into your life and they, they hurt you. They hurt the church and they grieve the spirit of God. The question is, is it worth it? No, it's not worth it. So we must rearrange our life so that the obvious possibility of sin is reduced to a very minimum. The best time to kill a cobra is while it's still in the egg. Billy Sunday said one reason sin flourishes in that it is, is that it's treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. The best way to deal with sin is to cut out the things that give temptation's biggest opening. Keep a disciplined mind on what you read and what you watch and where you go and what you do. This, is, this will help you to avoid any and many of the headaches that, are un, un, that cause unnecessary defeat in our lives. At the same time, we need to keep God keep asking God to keep us every day from every place of danger. I would recommend, especially to you ladies, you go into a parking lot somewhere to go to a shopping center or uh, do they have those anymore uh, at a grocery store or whatever. You look around before you get out of your car. And before you go back to your car after you shop, you look around. You be careful. You keep your eyes open. By the way, if you do any shopping on the Internet, you need to be careful there, too, and watch out. So we see here, we see here greatness through service. Greatness through service. Would we stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed? Would you say, preacher?
I want my service to be for God what God wants it to be. I don't seek to be great in my life, but I want my service to be great. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just slip your hand and say, pray for me, that that be so? Yes, God bless you. God bless you. We're going to come with a song now, and while, while we sing, maybe God spoke to your heart today, and you want to just slip out of where you are and say, Lord, help me. Help me in my service. Help my service to be great for you. I don't seek to be great, but I want my service to be great. While these are coming, would you slip out of where you are and let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for this day you've given us and for our time together. And I pray now, Lord, you've spoken to our hearts. Help us, Lord. Lord, I want my service to be great for you. And Lord, I don't seek greatness, but I want my service to be great. And I'm sure these who raised our hands today, they want the same. Lord, we have loved ones around us and, and neighbors that need to be saved. We don't need to put on a show for them to see that we're great. We just let them see the greatness of our service. Help us, Lord. Forgive us where we've failed you. And Father, should there be anybody here that's without Christ, I pray today they come to know him as their Savior. Maybe somebody's followed afar off and they need to come home. I pray you do that today. Bring them to you. And what you do for us, Lord, we'll praise you and thank you.